Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each Tuesday. And go, leave a five-star rating and review. It's easy. Just go to the show page on the app that you are using right now and hit five stars. It only takes a few seconds and it helps us find new listeners. And go find us on Instagram and Facebook at Shifting Culture Podcast. While previous guests on the show have included David Fitch, Andrew Root, and Lucy Pepiot. You can go back, you can listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is Scott McKnight. Dr. Scott McKnight is the chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He is a world-renowned speaker, writer, professor, and equipper of the church. He is the author of many books, including The King Jesus Gospel, The Blue Parakeet, A Church Called Tove, and his latest, Revelation for the Rest of Us. We get to have a wonderful discussion on the book of Revelation, and it's really one of the first times I really enjoyed talking about the book of Revelation, and uh, how Revelation is a vision for how we as followers of Jesus can live faithfully as witnesses to the Lamb in the shadow of Babylon or the empire today. But we talk about being dissident disciples and how black spirituals are an example of the songs in Revelation, how the gospel sees and utilizes power, and a whole lot more. It's a wonderful conversation that I know you'll get a lot out of. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Scott McKnight. Scott, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you on, so thanks for joining me. Well, Joshua, thank you for inviting me, um, and uh, good to meet you, and I hope to have a good conversation here. Yeah, I hope to have a good conversation, too. I'm really excited. To be honest, this is, after reading your book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, it's probably one of the first times in my life that I'm excited to talk about the book of Revelation. Uh, and to move forward. And I've been, you know, in my, my life, and I grew up around dispensational, speculative thinking about the book of Revelation. And because of that, I've, I've largely wanted to just to ignore the book and take some things, uh, you know, as I, I lead a missions organization. So I'll take, you know, new heaven and new earth. I'll take everybody around the throne of Jesus, every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I'll take some of those things out of Revelation, but a lot of the a lot of the the craziness, I, I was like, let me ignore it. But this this book made me excited. What was your story like growing up with the Book of Revelation, and what was the culture around it when you were growing up? Well, thanks. And uh, Joshua, your experience, uh, what you just told me, uh, was so overwhelmingly clear with the students that I taught recently, about 60 students, the book of Revelation, that uh, I know that your experience is pretty common. Yeah. And in a sense, it was mine, although I don't have the privilege of ignoring it because I teach the New Testament. Right. <laughs> and for 17 years, I taught the whole New Testament. Uh, at least twice a year. And then um, when I taught at Trinity the years before, I sometimes was assigned to a class that taught the book of Revelation. So I've not been able to ignore it, uh, but I had a similar experience. Here, my, I grew up in dispensations. In fact, when I, uh, I, was a, I became a paper boy, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old, 
And um, the first thing I bought with my paper route money was a Schofield Bible, old Schofield Bible. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why I did that. Maybe my parents suggested that. But uh, so I grew up on a Schofield Bible, which really puts me in a pretty narrow camp of dispensationalism. Mm. My father was a Sunday school teacher, and he was a dispensationalist, but he didn't think uh, quite like dispensationalists. I mean, it wasn't a big deal to him, but our church was pre-trib rapture. When I was in high school, though, I had a youth pastor who was pretty big on dispensationalism um, and thought a little tweaking uh, of something that didn't matter was actually a, an act of courage on his part, so we always admired him for his <laughs> uh, commitment to the Bible. But then I, I read when I was a uh, between my junior and senior year in high school, and maybe it was in the fall, I read Salem Curban's Left, uh, the Guide to Survival, hmm. which was a book about, uh, uh, what, it was a book that was written for people who would be alive after the rapture and how it would all, how this book would explain everything that's going on. Huh. And it was fascinating. And of course, I believed everything that was in yeah. it. Because I didn't know any better, and we were dispensational leaning. And at that time, um, Hal Lindsey's book was nowhere near as big in my circles as Salem Kerban. And most people don't know him today. Yeah. But he sort of created the template for Salem Kerban. In college, I became um, a student of eschatology. I became post-trib. Um because of Robert Gundry's book, The Church and the Tribulation, or something like this. It was a courageous book for Bob Gundry, who was a teacher at Biola. And um, and th that's about as far and as radical as I got. And then by the time I got to seminary, I wasn't really interested in this discussion. Uh, people were still talking about it, like four views, three views of the millennium, and I read that book. Uh, there was a big debate at our seminary at Trinity on the rapture question. Doug Moo, Paul Feinberg, I can't remember who else. I think there were three or four people, police and Archer maybe. It was published. By the time the book came out, I wasn't even interested in the conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I went off to do a PhD. When I came back and started teaching at Trinity, uh, I was post-trib, and I just thought it was silly that American evangelicals uh, didn't at our seminary, and I talked to our president at the time about it, didn't even think, you couldn't teach at our school if you were, if you were a millennial. Hmm. And I remember thinking, well, if John Stott can't teach here, this isn't very, this isn't very good. Yeah. But by that time, by the time I started teaching at North Park, which was some 27 years ago, I was no longer even interested in that topic. Hmm. I was much more concerned with what I would call today a theopolitical reading, which is what my book is with Cody Matchett, Revelation for the Rest of Us, which by that I mean it teaches us how to think about empire in our world and yeah. in that world. Uh, I was much more interested in that. So when I taught Revelation uh, to the undergrads, I I emphasized those themes, but you know they were asking questions about <laughs> rapture and mid-trib and all this sort of thing, and millennium. Um, so when I got to North, uh, Northern Seminary just 10 years ago, uh, I had in my sights that someday I would teach about Revelation. And it was actually a student, a D-Men student, who suggested for my next class that I teach on the book of Revelation. And I said, no, I can't. It's, I don't have time to prepare for that. But I, it was actually something that spurred me forward to teach a course at the undergraduate, I mean, at the master's level rather than the doctoral level on the book of Revelation and put together all the stuff that I had been mm -hmm. thinking about and reading uh, for years, preaching about in different ways. So I taught this class and just everything fell together. And when it was done, I, I said to Cody, I, I want you to help me uh, with this. He had been studying with me. He had been doing research with me uh, for the class. Um, and I just started writing it and I put it together and then Cody worked over some things and added some things and corrected some things and asked questions and, and he wrote sections and revised stuff that I wrote. <laughs> so we were genuinely, uh, he, he's genuinely a co-author with this book. This mm -hmm. isn't 
someone that I said, you're along for the ride. I mean, I, I listened to him quite a bit. So wow, that's great. So that's, that's, that's it. <laughs> so if, if, uh, this, uh, speculative approach of, of trying to, to figure out who is the antichrist and, and we all have decided, you know, so-and-so, and then it never was, and it never worked out. If this is probably not a reading that is very helpful for the church and may even be harmful, how should we read the book of Revelation um, and how can we apply it to our lives today? That's a great question. Well, to me, uh, the speculative approach or speculation, the speculators, a friend of mine kept calling it on a on a conversation I had the other day, uh, the spectators, a spectator approach. <laughs> I went, okay, that's kind of true too. Uh, but the and it is a sense of they're spectators in the in the conversation, yeah, participants. But it is um, they're always trying to figure out who in our modern world is doing what in the Book of Revelation that fulfills promises and prophecies of what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. So, for instance. The eyes of the world of these dispensational speculators would have turned to uh, Vladimir Putin recently. So maybe he's the Antichrist. I remember in college that it was Gorbachev because of his birthmark. And, uh, and I heard another guy say that, it was, that the beast was, was Kissinger. And I thought, holy mackerel, that's getting close to home. Um, and then you read like Left Behind, which I did not read, but my daughter and my son both read them, and they were always talking about it. All of that stuff occurs in the Chicago land. Um, and here's what's, what I see has happened. Instead of creating the kind of Christian life that the book of Revelation actually advocates for, mm. it leads to a Christian life that focuses, number one, on uh, the future, yep. on identifying some people, on escaping those problems, because after all, they're not going to have to go through it. But oddly enough, and this is sad, um, it identifies the United States with Israel, and therefore we're the winners in this ultimate battle. Right. Um, and it's and it's such a literalistic, you know. And I'm I would even say flat-footed literalism about so many things. When I was in college, Tim LaHaye wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, in which there was art, artistic drawings of beasts with seven heads. And, you know, you think, <laughs> oh, my goodness, these are at least images. So instead of advocating for the proper Christian life, it advocates a sort of, I'm on the right team. We're going to win. Yeah, We won't be here when this happens. So let's get more people saved so we can escape this stuff. And I think that completely fails it. Instead, the book actually is a, is designed to inculcate and inform uh, Christians into disciples of Jesus who follow the Lamb, who is, mm. of course, rejected, and, but he will rule. Um, and it gives them categories for identifying the, the evil of the world and the marks of Babylon. Mm, yeah. And when you understand Revelation, I, I often tell my students they have to read the, the book of Revelation somewhat backwards by starting in Revelation 17 and read that passage about Babylon, because that's the problem that mm. the churches in Revelation 2 to 3 are facing. That's the Babylon of the current world. And I try to get them to read that and say, what are the marks of Babylon? And the minute students... This is amazing, uh, Joshua. So if you ever teach a class, you can do this. Get them to read Revelation 17 and, and into chapter 18 and ask the question, what are the major features of Babylon? And those all of a sudden jump off the page and they say, wow, this is, this is what's going on now. And my thesis is that Babylon is timeless. It is not just, it's not some future kingdom. It's the it's the way empires and tyrants work in this world who oppose the gospel and who oppose the lamb and Jesus. So that's actually helpful for us because if, if Babylon is timeless and this is the way the empire works and that that's the problem 
And then the empire is actually moving into the churches and the churches are uh, having some problems because they're letting the empire in in such a way and not living as faithful witnesses to the lamb, to Jesus. Um, Mm -hmm. That says that, hey, we can actually see these marks of Babylon, these marks of the empire here. So we know what we're up against and we know if our church actually is moving a, the wrong way, we could realign back to the lamb. Uh, yeah. It's helpful for us today. What are some of these, these marks that we as disciples should be looking out for uh, as the empire? What are we looking out for? Well, I, uh, we mentioned uh, these categories. One is Rome. As Jews and Christians understood it was anti-God because they believed in gods and didn't believe in the true God of the world. So we can start with a theological category. The second one is opulence. Mm. One of the descriptions of Babylon is just all the the foods and the drinks and the uh, fine clothing and wines and it's everything coming to Rome. Yeah. For and and this becomes an image. And when when your leaders love opulence, people who want to be leaders start loving opulence and it becomes a part of the culture. Yep. A third was, we called it murderous, is that they killed. Uh, they put to death the witnesses of Jesus in that world. So martyrdoms was, would be a part of it. Um, an, abs- an obsession with their image, branding. Uh, in every city in the empire, major city, there were statues and memorials and all sorts of memory makers and reminders of the presence of of Rome throughout the world. And this is, uh, you know, we have presidential images on our coins, but they're always dead, you know. But it's when it's a living emperor. Yeah. You know, Julius Caesar, uh, but eventually Augustus and uh, Claudius and uh, Nero, probably at the time of the Book of Revelation, their images are out there, mm. and they are constantly reminding people that Rome is in charge. The militarism of the Roman Empire is astounding, and it could be so arbitrary. There's always wars going on. They needed more uh, provisions, more grains. They uh, To do that, they would just conquer countries. Yeah. They were always expanding, and I'm reading right now, I've, I've read recently Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Emperors, or some of it, and you know they're just one of the these emperors are always out on the edges when they as they rise into power as military victors. So the emperor was actually like a Schwarzenegger type <laughs> guy, rather than a sophisticated Mitch Romney or whoever people like, you know. And uh, there it was economic exploitation to the extreme. Mm. Uh, if you had what Rome wanted, they conquered you so they could have what you have. Yeah. And they would steal it from you. And then the other one is arrogance. And uh, ultimately, it's about domination of, of other people. And I think if we master these categories, these uh, seven categories, along with the idea of domination, we will have, we, we need to develop then an independence of our of our president, of our authorities, rather than allegiance to a party and to, let's say, a politician, we become Christian witnesses to the Lamb who can see uh, and discern the presence of Babylon in our nation as well. Yeah. And it is very true. I mean, not many people would deny that Donald Trump was arrogant. Yeah, I mean, okay, I don't know what your politics, and it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter what the politics are. He's an arrogant man. <laughs> and it, to me, it is about, and there are people who say, well, I wouldn't say that because I'm a Republican. I would never criticize my my party's president. Well, that's the problem right yeah. there. We have to become discerning enough to recognize what's good and what's bad yeah. and what is connected to Babylon and what is connected to New Jerusalem. Yep. And, and that's where I think uh, the book of Revelation teaches us to be discerning mm. so, and that we at times are going to have to become dissident disciples mm. of the Lamb. Mm. And that is, we resist the ways of Babylon in the church, 
because it is all Rome was so big, it was always coming down on the yeah. churches in Western Asia Minor. So well, we can see that today. So what does it look like then for us if we are called to be dissident disciples and resist the empire and be witnesses to something else, which is the Lamb of God? How then should we we live in that way? How should we go about doing that? Well, I think the book of Revelation teaches two primary principles for the Christian life for people who are living in empire. And we all are to one degree or another. Yeah. And it's not like these are the only two things. Uh, you know, beside the fact that Jesus is the Lord, he's the rider on the white horse, he's going to come and conquer, and God's justice will be established in peace and the new Jerusalem. So that's the big vision. Uh, Randy Harris, who is a teacher that I really like, said, uh, uh, God's team wins, choose your team, don't be stupid. Uh, the, and he says, that's what the book of Revelation is about. I thought, that's pretty close. Um, I think there's two things. Number one is to be a witness. Hmm. To be a witness is to know the story of Jesus, to know that the vision of the book of Revelation teaches that he is the not the Lion of Judah as a conquering venomous or powerful lion, but he is a lamb. Mm. And we need to understand Jesus through the lens of a lamb when we are in empire. And then we witness to who he is. We witness to him verbally by by confessing our faith, mm. by telling others about Jesus as the lamb. And verbally, I think we also express disagreement at times with the way things are turning out yeah. and the way you know, if people demand that you be dishonest or spin your story, then you don't do that. Hmm. And But ultimately then, also the witness of the book of Revelation is a witness of life. And so the word witness in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, is cognate with the word, I mean, it is, it's the noun uh, for martyrdom, uh, for hmm. a martyr. So ultimately, a witness in the book of Revelation is someone who confesses Jesus, the Lamb, as the world's true leader, that we commit ourselves to him and follow him. But we also put our life on the line when we choose to follow Jesus in this world. And that, I think, is a fundamental principle of the entire book of Revelation. And that means that a witness is a dissident. A witness is someone who resists uh, but it, uh, it is also someone who affirmatively lives a life of serving others, love, grace, whatever words you want to use, the fruit of the Spirit, yeah. and at the same time is faithful when the challenge comes of not following in the way of the Lamb. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the first principle, is witness. The second principle, and this is one of the most exciting things, Joshua, in the entire book of Revelation for me, and this is how I read the book, so I hope I'm right, but my <laughs> critics will be the first ones to point it out. I am impressed by the number of songs in the book of Revelation. When mm. I mean songs, they are poetic lines, and we can count these songs, and some people count, you know, like 15 to 20, uh, like the little lines from, the, from songs. But there's mm. pretty full descriptions of eight or nine of these songs. And... These songs, by and large, interrupt those difficult chapters, especially chapter 6 through 16, or you could go from chapter 4 through chapter 18, however you want to yeah. divide up the book. And you'll see that these songs just interrupt everything. Hmm. And this is the, the, if the first word of the Christian life in Revelation is witness, the second word is worship. Hmm. And, and the way to form Christians uh, in a Christian manner in the book of Revelation uh, so that they are witnesses to the Lamb is to routinely worship God. Yeah. When you worship God, you no longer worship Rome. You no longer worship the emperor. When you worship God and you go to the market and you see statues, you see there symbols of Rome 
that are not characteristic of your faith and your way of life. When you go to ordinary homes in the Roman Empire, they will have a small shrine in their house, lararium, and they will, and you will look at that and you will say, this is not the way we do things because we worship Jesus who is on the throne, Jesus the Lamb. And these songs are beautiful songs in the book of Revelation over and over. They interrupt and they sort of say, no, these are going to be difficult times, the judgment of God against sin, but the true people of God are worshiping God. And that's how they learn to discern the presence of Babylon. It's because they've learned to worship God. So witness Mm. and worship, to me, are the two major themes of the Christian life. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's that's great. A couple couple of thoughts that I had. I, I wonder what witness in Revelation and then witness in like Acts one eight that the Holy Spirit will come upon us to be our witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Uh, what correlation is there? Because I also think you know witnesses. One a part of the Holy Spirit gives us you know the Holy Spirit gives us some discernment as we move forward too, and we could discern. Is there a correlation between those two? Yeah, yeah very, very good, Joshua. The, yes, uh, you will be my witnesses, the same kind of word. But here, here's the key thing. In the book of Revelation, you know, we know there are churches in Western Asia Minor. Yeah. And they're, and they're little. There are not very many of them. Yep. And there are seven that are within, let's say, John's jurisdiction as, <laughs> as a bishop, what, call him whatever we want, um, that that he had uh, impact on these churches. And some of them overlap with Paul, which I find to be very interesting. Maybe John was now the leader of those churches that Paul had been the leader of. But there aren't very many Christians. It's sort of, uh, when, you, when you look at the book of Revelation and you say, we are going to rule the world in the first century, there could have been some Christians who would have posted on the local walls of Ephesus, LOL, we're going to rule the world. Mm. Because it's sort of like, uh, uh, let's say, 500, 1,000 Christians, maybe, in Western Asia Minor wow. at, the, at the time of this book, maybe 2,000, not that many. But yet, when you read the book of Revelation, you discover over and over in the book these this theme of there will be people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, and myriads and myriads of Christians in the book of Revelation uh, as the vision begins to develop. And so you have to think that, I think you kind of have two options. You can think that, well, God saves everyone, a sort of universalism, or you say, you know, the witness of these believers is going to go out so wide and so deep, and it's going to impact so many people that there are going to be myriads of people who come to worship the Lamb. Through the witness of, of course, these seven small churches, and John, of course, he knows about other Christians in Rome and Jerusalem, etc., or the the Holy Land. So, but there's something entirely stunning and exciting about seeing the number of believers in the book of Revelation when you think of the marginal size of the believers when that book was actually written. I, I find it to be, I think, yeah. th- this group of people is going to have a huge impact. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that a, a small group of people can have a, a major impact like that. Uh, you know, when you were talking about worship, I mean, the thing that was going through my mind is that the the interludes or the interruptions that you were were talking about the the scenes. It kind of reminded me of of old black spirituals when when there were slaves going through really you know horrible things from empire. Then they would start to sing and worship and remind themselves. That's you know we're not we're following someone else we're following this the the lamb. Um, is there any other examples for today that you could say is that worship that worship interruption that worship interlude that helps us follow Jesus in, in a place of uh, total disruption and decay of the world? Well, 
Joshua, I'm glad you brought this up because I, uh, it went through my head and I never got back to it. But Brian Blount is the one who pointed, he's a great uh, New Testament scholar, um, African-American theologian. Brian is the one who pointed me to a study that he had written on the African-American or uh, the spiritual tradition of the African-American mm-hmm. church as a form of singing that wasn't simply worship, but it was underhanded sabotage and subversion. Yeah. So the African-American who listened, the black spirituals, when they sing these songs, you know, you know, we're going to cross over the river, they're thinking, you know, Jordan, you know, that's an image for going to yeah. heaven. But it's also the Mississippi or the Ohio, uh-huh. and they're going to get across into the into the northern states and seek freedom and liberation. And I believe that the only parallel that I'm aware of of the Book of Revelation songs is in the Black spirituals tradition. Mm-hmm. So I don't even call them songs in here in in honor of Brian Blount and some others, you know, that I read along the line who do the same thing. Um, I believe that these songs in the book of Revelation are spirituals in the sense that this is the, these are the songs of resistors. They are the yeah. songs of dissidents who, when they sing this song, they're saying, Jesus is Lord, and that means Caesar is not. Yeah. That means is that Nero is not, or Domitian, whoever you anchor it to. And so, yes, I find these songs to be absolutely brilliant political sabotage. <laughs> yes, oh. they they are brilliant political sabotage, and and it's you know I, we're worshiping Jesus, and and it actually, man, it's also I think a really incriminating piece of the empire infiltrated the church in that time, and it's yeah. infiltrated the church in our day and age. Oh, and so can you speak, is there is there a few uh, dissident disciples that you see that is calling us to a different way, a way away from the empire and a way towards, towards the lamb and Jesus and living faithfully towards him that you see today? Well, you know, I think there are a lot of them. They're, they're the people that I like the most, you know, so they're on my <laughs> team. Um, for instance, I really like uh, N.T. Wright or Tom Wright's literature. Mm-hmm. He has within him, uh, because he's British and, put, and he has a lovely mm-hmm. accent, um, he has an ability to poke at the United States in ways that, that sound like, well, they're dissident to the United States. Yeah. As an outsider, he can get by with it uh, and people just put up with it. But I, I, think, I think he's done a lot on no. this way. I think, uh, you know, this book was dedicated to to Beth Barr, who is at Baylor University, yeah. and Kristen Kobus Dumay, who's at Calvin, because they have both been Christian dissidents against pa- patriarchalism mm-hmm. and masculinity and masculism in the church. Uh-huh. And they've been dissidents, and they take the heat for it. But that is, that's an example of people who are seeing corruption, power-mongering by males, especially white males, in the church that deserved criticism. Mm. Uh, so they're, so, and, and you know, we can, the people who tend to be the most critical like this, who operate the way the Book of Revelation are, tend to be a little bit more progressive in their politics, say Shane Claiborne or Tony Campolo, who's a little bit older, uh, and they, they have said, you know, they love the United States, but they're not afraid to say we're, we're lost in consumerism. We're yeah. lost in capitalism. And you think Rome was all about economic exploitation. Mm-hmm. You know, we're lost in trying to win elections as if this is going to bring in the kingdom of God. That's domination. Mm-hmm. That's a sign of Babylon. Yeah. Um, they call attention to the militaristic power mongering of American, the American military. Yep. And, um, and they tend to be pacifistic in their approach or at least nonviolent in their approach. And they see these things, they see 
abortions, and they see um, euthanasia as as a government unleashing murderous uh, mm. activities. They see uh, the presence of powerful signs and powerful buildings and flags where they shouldn't be, let's say, in the front of a church, and they see that's Babylon in, in the church. Th- those are the people who are helping us live the way the book of Revelation calls us to live. Yeah. So I... I see a lot of uh, I see a lot of people who are calling attention to these things. Yeah, Look, I, I grew up in the seventies, <laughs> which is really the which is really the sixties. Uh, you know, people talk about the sixties. That was the end of the sixties and into the early seventies. And um, so I remember the Jesus people, and I remember the hippies who were calling attention to corruptions and a lack of community, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, racism, sexism, exploitation. We see this in the United States, and and dissidents are the ones who could call it out. Those who are so attached to a political party will not criticize their political party. Those are people that I, I'm most concerned about. Mm. Yeah. And so then, what, what do we do then if we are so enmeshed with a political party, so enmeshed in Christian nationalism, um, that we can't see it uh, in the church. And I think there's a lot of churches and people that they really can't see it. They're yeah. like swimming in the waters and they don't know that they're in the water. Um, what's And then also, what is really <laughs> harmful about us taking Christian nationalists and political sides? Well... I would say we need a, a, a thorough baptism into the book of Revelation to see how empire, politics, power that comes from government impacts individually and how it impacts the churches so that we we hear this in the book of Revelation. We need to read people who are calling attention to these sorts of invasions by Babylon in our churches today. And... To me, the the danger, uh, politics, let's say national elections, is about power. Mm. All right. Yeah. The more intoxicated, the more obsessed, the more influenced we are by trying to gain power. Yeah. The less we will see that true power is in the hands of the Lamb, mm. is in the hands of serving one another rather than ruling over one another. Yeah. And I, to me, we need a thorough baptism in the teachings of Jesus toward uh, serving one another. Yeah. You know, a true follower of Jesus is self-denying, not always self-asserting. We need to see Paul's vision in, in Philippians chapter 2, the song that becomes the paradigm of how Christians mm-hmm. are to relate to one another in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. We need to see this in the book of Revelation. We need to see the witness of the early church that had so much power was not established by winning the nation of Rome, but by witnessing to Jesus, suffering for it. And Mm. when the church gained power with Rome, immediately the church got corrupted. Yeah. And then it became, uh, the church became the way of Rome. And over and over, like Constantine, you look at Constantine, and he is a military commander. He's murderous above all things. Wow. He loved to go to war and just slaughter places. And we think about that, and we think that's connected to the church. This is exactly what happened hmm. when the church uh, blends itself with the nation, with the federal government, with the politics of power, and, and it, in fact, loses its capacity to see its own power to see the corruptions of power, and it loses its capacity to witness because ultimately it's not worshiping the lamb, it's worshiping the government. Yeah. You know, I wrote down uh, that you wrote in your book, power for Jesus was power for the other and not power over the other, is what you you wrote. And I think that, you know, is something that if we see it, and that power right now is really something that we're enmeshed with in, in every situation. You know, we're having conversations about what what is authoritative leadership and how 
is there an abuse of power in in leaders? We're seeing that within the church. We're seeing it, you know, all over the place. How could we start to be more like Jesus and and actually serve well and give power over to others, especially the mar- marginalized, the neglected, the ones that don't have power? How can we start to humble ourselves and and lift others up and give power over? Well, I see power in the New Testament or power in society operating like this. There's there's power over. And that's when someone can dominate. You know, so uh let's say you run a business and you decide you're gonna do this and you don't care what anybody else thinks. I I see that it's the most um unchristian use uh the most unchristian form of, of the use of power. Okay, then there's power too. So this is a slightly different category. And that is you and I have power to make things happen. Influence. We have influence. Everybody has influence. Almost everybody has power over some things. All right. But it starts to become the radical vision of power that Jesus, when his disciples, two of them, want to be at the left and right in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, that's the way of Rome folks, and he doesn't say it quite that way, but that's what he's talking about. And he says, the Son of Man, this is his climactic statement, did not come to be served, you know, power over, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus shifts power. And I like to say there's power over and there's power to. Those are, power over tends to be corrupted. Power to can be neutral. But power with is when we have power and we share it. When someone, you know, I, I deal a lot with pastors, and I tell my students this, if you are the pastor and you are the preacher, sit down and let someone else preach. Uh, you know, share your power, because power in the gospel with the Holy Spirit is not a zero-sum game. It can be distributed to other people, and it enhances power the proper way rather than centralizing power. And then finally, uh, we use, so it's power over, power to, power with, and power for. And this is when we actually give our power away. A friend of mine was a pastor in a church, and he thought that he thought that uh, too much was going on around him, and he thought he needed to step back. So he, in a sense, resigned and handed over the reins, the leadership in the church, to someone else, and he gave it away. Um, now, the, the next person, then, after a couple of years, realizes it's a hard job. I don't, I don't really know what happened. And, and, he, and he left, so my friend became the pastor again. But he's sharing his power now with someone else um, who is more uh, a part of the community. So I really believe that Christians have to completely revolutionize by repenting from their misuses of power and by forming themselves into a proper Christian use of power where we use the power that we have for the good of other people. We give it away and we use it for other people. Hmm. That's when that's what Jesus does. And that's when I think that's when we're properly using power. Hmm. That's so good, and that's helpful for for us to know how to properly properly use power. Um, you know, as we're looking through this this book of Revelation, we're looking into New Jerusalem, um, New Heaven. We're looking at what does it look like, knowing that the Lamb wins, that there is going to be a New Jerusalem, that the kingdom of God is something a place where we could live under the reign and rule of Jesus, and that He's going to be on the throne forever, and that we actually get to live as distant disciples here and now to help it, let people know that there is some right living towards the Lamb mm-hmm. that will eventually become all things because we get the kingdom forever and we get this and you could actually live in it now and today. What else would you would you say for us in the book of Revelation? Do we really need to grab a hold of, to move forward so that we could see the proper proper view of it and we could live faithfully as, as witnesses to Jesus in this world. 
Well, Joshua, I would say we need to surrender the speculation approach and try to figure out who's doing what, who in the modern world is doing what in the book of Revelation. And we need to catch a vision of the New Jerusalem and to see that in the New Jerusalem, Jesus, the God, will be the center of everything. Mm-hmm. But humans will participate in this, and they will participate in a society that is just, that is peaceful, that is relationally harmonious, um, where love obtains and rules. And and we need to think of that's the way God wants this world to be now. A great theologian in the United States, his name is Miroslav Volk, he's writing a theology at a very accessible level. But his theology is trying to create for American Christians a Christian way of living in this world and of making an an impact or influence. And he's moving things toward love and peace. I mean, these are two of his major themes. And I think he's exactly right about this. Hmm. And and I believe his first first volume of this series, I guess, the second volume is called Home. Um, I really believe that we need to catch the vision of the new Jerusalem for us to see what the church is actually designed to be, and that we can begin practicing new Jerusalem now. Mm. Uh, Not that we're going to achieve some utopia in the present world. Uh, We just visited a Shaker village in Kentucky, Mm. (laughs) and and they kind of thought the millennium was coming soon and they were going to be a part of it. I, I think that mistakes everything. That's just another form of speculating. Mm. Um, I think that we need to see that we are to be people who strive for peace, who strive for justice, who strive for love, who strive for wisdom through the vision of Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, who showed us the way to live in the empire when he revealed himself as the Lamb of God. So that, I think that's what we could do, Joshua. Yeah, I I think we could do that too. And I want to see that vision. I want to see that take place. We can actually bring and try to live in New Jerusalem now today. Um, I have a couple questions for you here at the end. One is if you go back to your 21-year-old self, Scott, what advice would you give? <laughs> My 21-year-old, I don't even know what that was like. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was a long time ago, about 50 years. Um um think 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 bigger think bigger in the sense of not what kind of career am i going to get who am i going to marry but uh think of the the world as a place where god wants the people of jesus to be living in such a way to witness to his kingdom vision rather than you know what makes for success in our world mm-hmm. so that would be one thing and i i would say concentrate on church and family as your social organizations. Mm. Um, you know, of course, read the Bible, et cetera. That, I'm a New Testament professor, this is what <laughs> we should do. But um, concentrate on family and church as the center of your society. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. That's good. Anything you've been reading, watching lately, you could recommend? And I know, I know, I guess I could, I mean, we could get like a huge list, but just a, <laughs> a few. Okay. Now, look, I, I've not been a novel reader my whole life, but in mm. about the last 10 years, I've been reading a lot more novels. And I just read, I just started reading a French writer who has some of his novels in in translation. His name is Francois Mauriac. Mm. And a book is called uh, The Woman of the Pharisees. And I read this book to be honest with you, because I knew it was going to use a stereotype of Pharisee that I could use in my lectures <laughs> and in, my, in a book that I'm uh, right now pondering. and But it was a brilliant description of, of human character and deformation of character. Hmm. So now I'm reading, his, I'm, re- I'm reading another of his novels, what's two short stories, The Weakling and The Enemy. But also, I'm reading his little book, uh, "What I Believe," which is a confession. So, hmm. um, I I really I I'm impressed by Francois Mauriac, a guy that I had seen his name, but I didn't know what to think of it. Hmm. 
So I'm reading that. that. That's sort of what I'm reading. But I'm always reading things for the blog, for my Substack account, and uh, stuff for lectures. So I'm, you know, that's what I do for a job. So yes, that's true. Uh, well, you know, people go out, and I really highly recommend everybody to read Revelation for the rest of us. Uh, your latest book. It is fantastic. It is amazing. I really loved it. Um, but Scott, where else could people connect with you? Uh, connect with your Substack or anything else that you're doing? Yes, I have a Substack newsletter, uh, which is sort of my newest version of the blog. Uh, you know, it's just Substack Scott McKnight. It was one T. I have a Twitter account, Scott McKnight, one T. I'm on Facebook, uh, not so much. I I have an Instagram account, but I I almost never go there, so I I don't even really know how to find what's going on with Instagram. <laughs> so mostly uh, Twitter and Facebook, mm. and uh, Substack is where I, they can find me the easiest. Mm. Well, Scott, thank you so much for this conversation. It was fantastic. I love just walking through a little bit of the book of Revelation and how we could read it for today so that we could actually see elements of the empire and we could be discerning dissident disciples uh, and we could know how do we live faithfully to the Lamb of God today. Uh, and so thank you for that. And I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you for inviting me, Joshua. Yeah. Thanks. Bless you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.